you know, if you're not familiar with that hymn, I want to encourage you. It's called Be Thou My Vision. I would encourage you this week to study it. Um, it's one of the great hymns of the faith. It's one of my favorite hymns. Um, and you can find it um, on Sovereign Grace's website or many other websites. If you don't have a sermon outline, these men have come forward to give you one. Everyone needs one. The way we study the Bible here in the life of the church, you will need an outline. Just slip up your hand and they'll be glad to give one to you. We return again to our study of this little letter of 1 John. And in fact, this morning we are looking at four verses that end the letter. Though this is not, as you would guess, the last sermon of this series. Um, we would never want to pass um, over such rich truths that are here in a light way. And so this morning we come to verses 18, 19, 20, and 21, and we'll really just be looking at the first half of verse 18. Um, this morning we are looking not at a how-to sermon so much as we are looking at the great gravitas of God's salvation, the great beauty and weight and deep, profound meaning of God's salvation of His people. You know, churches that I believe just teach how-to after how-to after how-to um, are never going to deal with all of the needs of the how-to in your life. But churches that teach deeply the Word of God, that teach you who God is, what He has done, and, and what we need to do in response to Him in our heart, that is what will see you through every aspect of your life. And so this morning, I want to encourage you to come and drink deeply of God's Word, that we would look and see what not only this passage says, but what the rest of the Bible says about this passage. You know, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. You can go and read other commentaries uh, that help you understand, but the more you study God's Word, the more you come to be familiar, to know your way around God's Word. This is why it's so important for you to read God's Word each day and during the week, as you submit your life to the Word of God, you learn of God. And so this morning we come, and we're going to be looking at some blessed, or we could say blessed assurances you need to know. Every person in this room needs these blessed assurances. And we see several of them in this passage, even before we read the passage, I want you to take your pen and help me out here a little bit. Circle the word, verse 18, circle the word, no. In verse 19, circle the word, no. In verse 20, circle the word, no. And do you see it? It's there twice that we know that He is the Son of God, that we may know Him who is true. And so we can see from this repetition, and in fact, if we were to go back to the verses that were previous to this, and especially verse 13, it says that in verse 13, these things have been written to you who believe in Jesus as the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So the Apostle John is writing to churches all over the Mediterranean world in the first century, and he's wanting to help them have assurances. 
He wants them to know. And let me tell you, if the Apostle John is wanting them to know, who is inspiring the Apostle John to write this? Okay, that was very weak. Who is, who is inspiring the Apostle John to write this letter? The Holy Spirit. This is God. God wants you to know these things. And so over the next few weeks, we are going to be looking at the blessed assurances that God wants you to know. And that'll do much more than any how-to sermon about one aspect of your life or another as we come and we hear from God the assurances that He desires for us. So let's review for just a moment. Let's, let's remind ourselves of the context of this passage. Notice that in chapter 5, verses 6 through 12, we saw God's testimony of Jesus Christ. We spent four sermons on that text because God wants you to know who Jesus Christ is. We see that throughout the Scripture that God is testifying to His Son and the purpose that His Son came into the world. That's a very powerful passage of Scripture in John chapter 5, verses, or 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. And then we came to John chapter 5, verses 13 through 17. And I'm so thankful for um, Headmaster Eric Spee and for Pastor Jason Hill preaching these messages. Uh, God's assurance of salvation for true believers. That's verse 13. These things have been written to you that you may know that you have eternal life for those who believe in Jesus Christ. Notice the next one there, God's answer to prayers in accordance with His will. You can be assured that God answers prayers in accordance with His will. I won't re-preach those messages, but those are very, very important scriptures for us. Well, this morning we come to chapter 5, verses 18 through 21, and the first of a few that show us the blessed assurances that you need to know. Now, I want us to just clarify something here. Um, if you, and notice these two bullet points. If you are not saved, that means you have not been converted to Jesus Christ. You have not come and submitted your life to the belief of who He is, turning from your sin and turning to faith in Christ, turning from reliance on yourself to turning in Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Here's the answer. Turn to Christ in belief and receive these assurances. This message is for you. This message is for you to see the goodness that God offers His people, to see the goodness that He has for His children. And we invite you to jump on in. We invite you to submit your pride before God and simply say to Him, Father in heaven, I recognize that I cannot save myself. Nothing else can save me except the cross of Jesus Christ where we see your sacrifice for our sins. That you would turn in belief to Him and be saved. And these assurances can be yours. But notice this, it's also to, if you are saved this morning, realize and enjoy these assurances. Realize and enjoy them. You mean God wants me to enjoy things? Absolutely. The French don't have the corner on the market of the plaisir de vie. God has the corner of the market on the plaisir de vie. 
The pleasure of life is from God. He knows how to make your life far better than any great cup of coffee, piece of cheese, or glass of wine. God knows how to give the human heart what it most desperately needs. And he can fill us in a way that nothing else can. And so from his word, we'll begin to see what he has for us, the assurances that he has for us. We can realize them and enjoy them. Many Christians do not walk in the assurances of God because they do not know what they are. They haven't studied the word. That's why this morning we come to the word. You don't need to know what Andrew Coleman thinks really about anything. You need to know what God says about everything. And this is why we study God's Word. Let's turn to the text and let's see here in 1 John chapter 5 and verses 18 through 21, and this does conclude the book in verse 21. That's the end of the book, so we're going to study this. Look at verse 18 with me. In fact, let's read out loud the underlined part in the box on the page in front of you. Let's read it together. Are you ready? We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. What does that mean? We're going to start into that this morning. We're not going to finish it, but we're going to start into that this morning. Look at verse 18. We know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. What does that mean? We'll see that next week. Look at verse 19. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So there's a juxtaposition here in verse 19. We know that we are from God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Two very different realities. Look at verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And that we are in him who, in who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. You see, these are things that God wants you to know. And he wants you to have assurance that you're in him. He is the true God and eternal life. Look at verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Very interesting way to end the entire letter. Idolatry is the great sin. Don't think of a stone or wood carving. We can have idols of all, anything that we worship, anything that we value over God, anything that we think about and obsess about more then the will and the purpose and the glory of God is an idol. When we focus on the things of this life more than we are focusing upon God and the devotion of our heart, the the wellspring of our heart in what we live, whenever God is not at the center of that focus, friends, we are in danger of idolatry. We are worshiping other gods. And so here he brings this, is a very powerful point, that it being the end of the letter, that little children, God's people, 
keep yourselves from idols. We'll look at that in a few weeks from now. But let's, let's look at this first phrase in verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Number one, notice this in filled in. If No, I think I left it filled in for you this morning. The assurance of victory over sin. We're going to look at this for a couple of weeks. The assurance of victory over sin. Now, the first thing that we need to recognize, I believe that is, is helpful for us, is to first look at unconverted people. The unconverted people are helpless in regards to their sin. They can't help but be in bondage to their sin. I want us to see what we mean by that, that sin rules over them. And circle that word unconverted up there. Because in a few moments, we're going to look at converted people and how they relate to sin. Let's first look at unconverted people, people who have not come to faith in Jesus Christ and have the power of the Holy Spirit in their life. Number one, the first bullet point that is there, they are sinners from birth. We all have been born in sin. Look at Psalm 51, verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, that's not the idea that the, the writer of that psalm, David, was born as a, as a result of an illegitimate uh, marriage or an illegitimate relationship with uh, his mother and his father. No, it's a much bigger spiritual reality that ever since Adam and Eve, this sin nature has been passed down from generation to generation to generation. And one of the ways that we see this and we call this, it leads to the total depravity of man. It leads to the total brokenness of our minds and our hearts. In fact, we even see it in Ukraine right now. We see it in Nigeria. We see it in Ethiopia. There's nothing that we won't do as humans. We can be involved in all kinds of wickedness and evil. In fact, some folks say, even from birth, you mean, is that, is that really true? Even from birth, we, we, we come into the world with a sin nature? Well, let me just ask you a question. Do you have to teach a two-year-old to do the wrong thing? No. What do you have to teach a two-year-old? To do the right thing. Do you have to teach a, te- a, a two-year-old... Um, to be selfish, you don't have to teach him to be selfish. Do you have to teach him to, not, to have a fit of rage? No, you don't have to. Do you have to teach him to hit someone? No. He'll do that all on his own. He'll bite and scratch and scream and holler and lie and steal and hoard. I mean, you name it, he'll do it. And if he keeps growing up, he'll grow into adulthood in an unrestrained sin nature. That's part of the reason that we have prisons that are overflowing. Is because if you don't teach a child to do the right thing, he will quickly do the wrong thing. And even sometimes when we teach children to do the right thing, they still, through the influence of the world and the wickedness of their own heart, they can still wind up breaking away and dishonoring all that is good and holy. So we see this in the nature, the very nature and the essence of who we are. Notice this, that unconverted people are enslaved to their sin. And Jesus says this, he says it very clearly in John chapter 8 and verse 34, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin, underline it, is a slave 
of sin or a slave to sin. And so we see this, that we, when we have not been redeemed by Christ, we are enslaved to our sin. We're in bondage to it. Look at Romans 6 and verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? You see, this is the Lord Jesus um, calling us to live in truth. The Apostle Paul preaching to us the reality that we are either in bondage to our sin or following God in righteousness. So they're not only birth from, sinners from birth and enslaved to their sin, but number uh, the, the third bullet point there, they are defiant and rebellious toward God. It's exactly what we are without Christ. Look at Psalm chapter 5 and verse 10. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. This is an imprecatory psalm against the wicked. And look what he says at the end. For they have rebelled what? Against you. You see, this is the the condition of the human heart in our rebellion. Not only that, but they are under Satan's dominion. Not just the general picture of sin itself and even the flesh, but they're under Satan's dominion, under his domination. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2, in which you once walked following the course of this world, and look what it says, read it out loud, the underlined part out loud, following the prince of the power of the air. And that is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And so Satan, the prince of the power of this present darkness, lives in domination over those who have not been redeemed by Christ. And those who are unconverted are completely dead in their trespasses and sins. They are completely dead in their trespasses and sins. Spiritually, they are dead. They're not just a little bit, it's not like they're toddlers spiritually just waiting to come into it. No, they're dead. They're not alive. They haven't been made alive. Jesus said, if anyone is going to come into the kingdom of God, he must be born again. He must have a new life. He must have a completely different life than his life in sin. So he is dead. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, Paul is writing to them, talking about all that Christ has done for them, and he compares it from before. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then just 12 verses later, he says it again, when you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, that means you had not yet been in covenant with God, God made you alive. He forgave us all our trespasses. Can you underline that part where it says, God made you alive with Christ? You see, that's what, that's what changes and so that's a, that's a great segue verse for us to look at because we go from looking at the unconverted, the person who has not been converted to Christ, and their condition to now look at the converted person. Can you circle the word converted on this, on that second page there? Converted people have, fill it in, 
upward victory over sin in their lives. Upward victory over sin in their lives. And we're going to look and see the way John treats this more next Sunday, but I want us to see it right now today in the, in the overall view. Scripture indicates that they cannot, that's converted people, that they cannot live in an unbroken pattern of sin. If you're God's person, if you have been redeemed by Christ, you will not live in an unbroken pattern of sin. You will not live as you lived before you came to faith in Jesus Christ. You see, coming to faith in Jesus Christ isn't just a mere intellectual ascent. It's not a little rote prayer that you spit out on a day when you feel some chill bumps and some type of a of an inclination toward some spiritual event that that would occur and that you have this little experience and then you go home unchanged. That is not what true conversion is. You see, true conversion is that the sin pattern that we were in bondage to is broken. And there's, there's a great deal of knowledge that God's Word gives us about this happening that we need to know. And many Christians don't know these things. And so they struggle on without the assurances that God gives. And so this morning, we want to look at this. You see, for converted people, we recognize that sin is incompatible with the law of God. Sin does not go with the law of God which is on the hearts of true believers. So circle those words, the law of God. This is very, very important. God comes and writes his law upon our hearts. The law shows us the reality of sin, the violation of God's law, and then God, through Jesus Christ, fulfills the law completely. And when we receive Christ, the law is fulfilled on our account. But sin is incompatible with the law of God. Look at 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices what? Lawlessness. You see, this is against the law of God. Sin is lawlessness. Notice the next part here. Sin is incompatible not just with the law of God, but it's incompatible with the work of Christ. And what is the work of Christ? That which brings redemption, that which rescues from the broken law, which is sin. Look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of what? sin and death. So the law of the spirit of life in Christ, this is where it comes from. Life in Christ. This is faith in Jesus. This is a walk in the life of Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. We are no longer in bondage to the law of sin and death. Notice the next part here. Converted people love God's law. Now, we see this throughout the Scripture, a dedication to the Word of God, the law of God. Um, When the Word was discovered after being lost for so many years, uh, 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 Jeremiah would say it this way, I have taken your words and I have eaten them. 
When the law was rediscovered and the words of God's truth and standard and holiness and all of his identity and all of his call to us was rediscovered, the people would stand for hours at the reading of God's word as they were rediscovering the beauty of this. And they came to say, your law is on our hearts. You have made us to love thy word. Look at Psalm 119. Now, just notice that Psalm 119, I've made that the only part that's yellow on this slide because you need to know about Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. Psalm 119 is totally focused on the Word of God. It is, and it says it in seven different key words that are used to describe that, the law, precepts, statutes, commandments of, the law, of, of God. And over and over again, and it's not just in these verses, but in other, other verses in Psalm 119, we see this theme of loving God's law, loving God's word, loving his precepts, loving his judgments. Notice in verse 97, how I, oh, how I love your law. Underline that. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Look at Psalm, uh, or verse 113, 113. Let's read it out loud, uh, verses, verse 113. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. Read Psalm, or 119, verse 153. Look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Read 163. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Read 165. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. You see, there is a great love and passion for what God has said because it's by God's law, by by his commandments, by his statutes that we come to see his holiness and we come to see our need for salvation. And this is what leads us safely home to God. The law isn't a bad thing. The law is a good thing. It It was given to us to help us see that we are sinners in need of a Savior. This is the beautiful picture of seeing the righteousness of God. We'll see the next one here. Converted people cannot continually live in the violation of God's law. Converted people cannot continually live in violation of God's law. And we see this over and over again in the little letter that we've just spent the last several months studying. Notice what it says right there in 1 John 2, 3 through 4, and then also in chapter 3, verse 4, I didn't include that. In chapter 5 and verse 3, I didn't include that. But this is a repeating cyclical theme in 1 John. And notice what it is. Look in verse 3, chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, it says this, and by this we know that we have come to know him. So again, we see the word know here. He, he wants us in this letter to be assured And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, underline it, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. And so we see that those who come to faith in Jesus Christ do not continue to live their lives in bondage to sin and death. Instead, they begin to live a changed life that's in accordance with God's Word. 
You see, this leads us to the next one. Converted people will display evidence, fill that in, will display evidence of being Christ's disciples. Look at John chapter 15 and verse 8 from the Gospel of John. He says, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, underline it, and so what? And so prove to be my disciples. You see, for the Christian, there is an evidence. Now listen, it's an evidence, it's not a means by which we are saved. The only thing that can save us is the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. The work of Christ is the only thing that will save you. But if the work of Christ is save you, then Christ's works are going to be in your life. You will do the good works that he has designed for you. This is clearly from Scripture, that it is by his grace that we are saved and we have been brought into his kingdom. And listen to this, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God has ordained for the, from the foundation of the world, from before the foundation of the world. We, if we are saved, have been saved for good works. We're not saved by good works, we're saved to good works. Well, if there's not a true clarity of his good works of holiness in your life, if you are continuing to be in bondage of sin, sin rules and reigns over you, you are not following him in the love of his word, you're not following him in the call and in the instructions of his word, then you don't know God, I don't care how much you have been at church. There are many people who sit in church Sunday after. There was one guy that said, Pastor, I come to church more than you do. <laughs> Jack Bland used to say that, Marcy. Jack Bland. He said, I, you know, occasionally you're on vacation, occasionally you're sick, occasionally you're off preaching somewhere else. I come to this church more than you do. Jack Bland was a wonderful man of God. He was in St. Augustine, Florida, and when I looked at him, he, he had been an alcoholic early on in his life. He had no control over that, um, had dip, troubles and difficulties as a child growing up. And Jack Bland um, heard the gospel, and he thought about it and thought about it, and as he would say, I ruminated on it. He was an old farmer when I knew him in his 80s. And as Jack Bland in his 20s heard the gospel and started to hear what all Jesus had done for him, he came to realize this is the truth, and he felt the Spirit of God calling him to believe. And Jack Bland humbly believed upon Jesus. Jack Bland would have never taught a Sunday school class. He didn't have the gift of teaching in a didactical way like this. But in fact, he was one of the greatest teachers I ever met because he lived the word of Christ and he simply walked obeying the Lord and loving the people around him, loving his church, serving in his church, serving in his community. He was a man who came to walk in obedience to the law of God. And he did it through faith in Jesus Christ. It was very evident that he 
was a follower of Jesus Christ. There was nobody that, in, that I knew in St. Augustine that would doubt that. Now, I, I just want to ask you, is your faith evident? It's a very important question. Notice here some questions for application. Number one, notice this question, and it's, there's a, I'm asking it a few different ways here. Number one, has Christ made a difference in my life? You need to ask yourself that question. Has Christ made a difference in my life? Has anything changed concerning the way I live? If so, what? What has changed? You need to be able to think through, has Christ made a difference in the way that I live? I mean substantially. And I mean more than just coming to church. You see, there's many people that would say, that's the litmus test of a Christian if you go to church. Well, Billy Graham used to say all the time when he was alive, I think 60 to 70% of people in our evangelical churches do not know God. Number two, do I live in sin against God and others? Oh yeah, the and others is important. We see in God's Word that that's monumentally… You say, well, I don't sin against God, but, you know, other people, I'm, I'm kind of annoyed with them, or I have reason with these people. No, that's, that's not the caveat that God gives us. He calls us throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament to live justly with those that are around us, to live in forgiveness with those that are around us, to live in concern with those who are around us, to love our neighbor as ourselves. Who is your neighbor? It's whoever is around you. Oh, you mean people at work? Yes. Certainly, you know, it doesn't mean my family. I'm glad it says love your neighbor and not your family, because if so, I'd be in big trouble. No. Your neighbor, when we see the principle of the New Testament, is those that are around you. Do you live in sin against God and your neighbor? If so, in all honesty, you need to ask yourself, am I okay with that? Am I okay with living in sin against God or my neighbor? How about this one at the end of number two? Do I even realize it? You may need to ask yourself that question. And let me tell you, if the Holy Spirit begins to reveal that to you as a deficiency and something that's wrong in your thinking and in your life, understand that that's His grace calling you to believe. It's His grace calling you to see it. It's His grace calling you. You see, the person who does not know God does not see his sin, but the person who knows God can see their sin. How about number three? Ask yourself this question, do I display the characteristics of a converted person? Is there evidence that I love God's Word? Is there evidence that I love His people? You remember with me that second one there, is there evidence that I love His people? John really deals with that. A couple of months ago, you can go back and read it in John chapter, 1 John chapter 3, where he says that if you don't love God's people, you don't love God. 
There's some people say, I'm fine with God, just not everybody else. And, and the church, man, the church is so messed up. I, I have no interest in organized religion. Be very aware that the person who has no love for the body of Jesus Christ, no love for the care of His people, no, no willingness to come and enter into life with one another, understand that those people don't know God. That's what First John says. And that principle was throughout the Old Testament that God's people were called to love Him and one another, to not deal… That's why there's so much written in the Old Testament about social justice, a true social justice, that you were called not to take advantage of one another and to oppress one another and ruin each other's lives, but you're called to come and be united together in the worship of God. This is a great call that will really reveal whether or not we know God. Do I display the characteristics of a converted person? Is there evidence that I love God's Word? Is there evidence that I love His people? Is there evidence or proof? We just saw that um, up a, a little bit on the page. If, is there evidence or proof that Christ lives in me? Have we proven to be his disciples? Well, the way you live will either validate your claim of faith or it will invalidate your claim of faith. This morning, I want to encourage you to take time this week and look over this message, and I want to encourage you to be reading Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 7, and Romans chapter 8, because next week the sermon is going to be The Believer's Struggle with Sin. This passage does not say that the believer never sins, and we will, we will look at that and say why John wrote what he wrote the way he wrote it, but this morning this is a very serious issue that we need to bring our hearts before God in our practices before Him. Would you stand with me for prayer this morning? I, I want to ask you to just bow your head and close your eyes and take a moment to consider the questions that I've just asked you. Where are you in your obedience of Christ? Where are you in relationship to sin? Are you on the upward path of victory in Christ Jesus? Or does sin reign over you and there is no way, no hope, no help? This morning, I invite you to run to Christ and to say, Lord Jesus, come and bring victory to my life.
I see that victory will never be in myself, but it will only be in the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross that paid for my sin and broke its bond over my life. This morning, I want to call you to believe upon Christ. Many have said, oh, I'll come to Christ after I stop these sins. I'll come to faith in Jesus after I get these things squared away. And you keep putting off a surrender to Christ. My friend, if you have that mindset, you will never come to faith in Jesus because you will never break the bond of sin. This morning, I want to encourage you to bring your anger, bring your lust, bring your undisciplinedness, bring your greed, bring your pride, bring your obsessions to Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, I'm broken and I need you. Father, I pray that this morning that your Holy Spirit would come and work in our hearts. In both those who do not believe, I pray that you would bring belief, and those who do believe. Father, I pray that we would be seeing the great call that you have given us to obey and love your word, to obey and love your, your people, to obey your commandments and, and see that there are good works that you are doing in our lives by the power of your spirit that we are a changed people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.